Um, how many of you have ever had the experience here in, in the Beltway in Vienna where you see wildlife that doesn't make sense, right? So a couple weeks ago, my, my oldest son often has soccer practice at Oakton or at Madison, and so we're coming 66. We got on just outside Falls Church where we live, and there's a six-point buck on the side of the road on 66 just looking around, like just having a good day looking around. Um, how many guys get foxes through the neighborhood, through the streets? Foxes are everywhere, right? Like what's, there's, um, we occasionally get some sort of coyote, wolf, dingo that actually goes up and down because we live not far in between where we are. There's, our pool has a sort of open area, so we get all kinds of weird stuff. And um, this morning, my dog and I were walking. I usually walk the dog in the morning as everybody sleeps, and he and I are walking, and we just got swooped a little bit, not, not dive-bombed, which has happened to me before, but swooped by an owl. Um, a few years ago, I got swooped, I got dive-bombed by this owl twice because I look like a big egg. Um, <laughs> I think, bec- I shouldn't be that funny, actually. It should just be a little funny. Um, but we got swooped, and I think I only got swooped because I had the dog. I have the 70-pound dog, and the, he's thinking, I don't really want to do that. But the, the owl swooped over us and then just went and landed in a tree and, and perched there and then did what, you know, owl, that owl thing to just land and look right? And it's still, it's not quite fully light, still a little dark. It's off in the woods like some scene out of Harry Potter, and it's a little freaky because I'm looking at the owl, and I'm thinking, it looks at, you, at me like, I know more than you know, and I can see more than you see. And it didn't move, and so I just kind of took the dog and moved quickly all along the way. Now, when we see an owl and it soups, what do we think about owls? We think owls are are wise, right? That's this symbol we have. Elephants remember and owls are wise. And this morning we're going to jump into Advent. Happy New Year. This is the first day of our new Christian New Year and into Advent. And we're going to be invited to be wise. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. And I want you to imagine that you are the owl swooping, looking to be wise and understand what's happening. Okay, that's what we're going to do this morning. So would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to know you is to know just the vastness of who you are. That Even those of us who might know you for decades now and who have known you in such deep and rich ways know that the closer we get to you, the bigger you are. And you know that we need to not only know you, but know ourselves. And that as we do both those things, we realize it is so stunning that you love us. So as we step into this new year and into Advent, and what it means in Advent to wait expectantly for the birth of your Son, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us your insight, and that you would invite us in fresh ways to how vast your love is for us. In your name, amen. Amen. So again, this morning, as Johnny said, is we are beginning several new things. So it's, as I mentioned, it's the beginning of the liturgical calendar. So this is Happy New Year Sunday. We're starting Advent, the season of preparation and waiting for Jesus's first coming as a baby. And we're starting as your church and our church, Church of the Ascension, just down the road, into sort of a, a, an immersion for a few weeks into using our Anglican prayer book. There's a new prayer book if, as Anglicans, which is not something either your church or our church stresses a lot, but your broad scope is you're an Anglican church, and that means you are a praying, worshiping people. That's 
one of the core beliefs of being Anglican, and we are guided by this Book of Common Prayer, which our province, the whole country, there have been these people writing, thinking, praying, putting together a new prayer book that just came out this summer, and so both your church and our church are going to use it, particularly during Advent and in the lead-up to Lent and Easter. Okay, so Johnny's going to say more about this, but I'd encourage you to get one if you don't have one and use it in the ways your church encourages you to read and pray the next few weeks as we are going to do as well. And part of the ways we're going to do that together is we'll be preaching on Sundays the next few weeks out of the book of Isaiah. People have organized the readings of God's Word in the Book of Common Prayer both for Sundays and daily readings. For Sundays, there's always an Old Testament, New Testament, Gospel, and a Psalm. And for Sundays the next few weeks, in this year in the Book of Common Prayer, it's Isaiah. So you're going to hear us walk through Isaiah some together, which is why you heard Isaiah 1 read this morning. And if you have a Bible and can open it to Isaiah 1, that would be great. Again this morning, we're jumping into Isaiah and into this invitation to wisdom. Isaiah 1 has several different genres, but one is wisdom in this book. And in some ways, what Isaiah is doing is inviting you to live out that line from Proverbs I prayed, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Run to the Lord, Yahweh. Isaiah, just some context, is a prophet in the 8th century B.C., so 700s B.C. And the book of Isaiah is a really important book. Some people say it's the most important book in the Old Testament. At a minimum, it's sort of the book of Romans of the Old Testament. If you know Romans, sort of is the cascading theology of Paul about God's great plan for the world. And Isaiah is sort of the cascading theology of Isaiah about God's plan for the world, his vision for history. What we know of the prophet Isaiah is he was married. His wife was probably a prophetess. She's called the prophetess. He had at least two sons. He built a community of disciples who prayed and taught others to fear and love Yahweh together. Not unlike this community as you do that together. It's clear in his book he suffered. He held fast in persecution. He was not very popular. He was probably related to the royal house of Israel. So he's often preaching against his family. And he continued to preach even as he was probably martyred. We typically believe that he was sawed to death in the early 690s B.C. Now, this first line in chapter 1, it says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. What that means is this vision of his li- that God gave him over his life was a very long faithful time. That's a span of over 100 years if you list out how long those kings were a part of leading Israel. At this time, there are actually two kingdoms in Israel. So there's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. This goes way back to the life right after King Solomon. Ten tribes go with part of Israel, and two tribes go to Judah. So you have the northern kingdom that's Israel, the southern kingdom that's Judah, and those four kings all lead Judah, the southern kingdom. This time, those initially in those four kings' lives was pretty thriving for Israel. So if you picture, I'm Judah and Israel, and I have Egypt on one side and Assyria on the other. As the 790s kick off, Egypt is kind of in a lull, and Assyria and the eastern side of powers are in a lull, and so Israel has space to thrive. And the time of King Uzziah, roughly 790 to 740 B.C., was a really high mark time in the life of Judah. It's probably the second most significant time economically and as a power in that area to Solomon being king. So you have this kind of thriving time initially, 
as Isaiah begins to hear God speak to him and as he begins to teach and preach. And Uzziah's doing great. And then so, as so often happens when we're doing great, what happens? He gets a little cocky. He begins to think, I'm doing all these things. He begins to flirt a little bit with some of the other religions around. And then he thinks, I'm going to go into the very temple itself and I'm going to offer the incense that only the priests are supposed to offer. So in that pride, he takes a worship, a tragic worship step. God inflicts him with leprosy because of his decision. And roughly 745 to 740, he's a leper. And as you'd expect, Judah begins to wane. As they go from this big burly Judah to this smaller Judah, what happens here? Egypt slowly still kind of in a lull, but Assyria becomes the world power on the stage and begins to conquer its way across the Middle East. As they do that, some of the other smaller countries say, let's band together and fight Assyria. And they go to Judah and say, let's band together. And Judah says, no. Uzziah says, I don't want to do that. So these guys that are banded together say, well, shoot, let's, why pick on the big bully? Let's pick on J Judah instead. So they turn their abuse towards Judah and come to conquer Judah. As they do that, what would you do? You're trying to do the right thing. You don't want any part of fighting Assyria because you're not stupid. Your political power is fading. What feels like the most important thing you have, your political prowess as God's people, is on the wane. How would you be tempted? Well, Uzziah is tempted to go to Assyria and say, hey, let's make a pact. Let's make a treaty together, you and I together. And Isaiah comes to Uzziah and says, don't do that. It's a terrible idea. Trust in the Lord. Against all the odds, against what looks like seeming destruction, trust in Yahweh. But what do you think happens? He makes the treaty, and thus begins the long, slippery slope of Judah in the ancient Middle East that finally catapults into total destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. And so many of the prophets we read are in those political situations that season of time. So that's the background. That's what's happening in Isaiah as you read. The real tragedy, though, isn't political, it's spiritual, because Judah has now grafted their worship to the gods of Assyria and the countries around them. And what we see in Isaiah 1 is God presenting his case against his people. He says to Israel, you are rebellious children. You have pride like your kings. You're just like your kings. And you've tied your hearts to some other gods that have promised you they will save. Gods made with human hands. This refrain we hear over and over again in the Old Testament. Things that we make that we think will save us. And then God describes the consequences of these relational ties and the pride. Not only have they tied their hearts to other their relationships to the wrong things, they've broken relationships with the right things. Sin is never about what you do, it's about the relationships you break by what you do. They've broken their relationship with God. They've broken the relationship with the family they were supposed to have. Part of the groups that attacked them from the north is the northern kingdom. It's supposed to be their family, right? At least we're supposed to be Israelites. We all tie back to Solomon and David. At least we could get along. No, part of the groups that attack Judah are the northern kingdom. That's how broken their relationships are. And then as you read in chapter 1, you see there's a break in relationship with the others. They're supposed to love and pursue the widowed, the poor, the fatherless. Israel's very existence as a nation is to point to what it's like in heaven. 
where people like the widow, the poor, and the fatherless have family and are wealthy and have enough and are cared for. The very reason they are supposed to exist has been broken. They've defied their very reason for existence. Now the irony, and I'd encourage you as you read through Isaiah, hopefully this month in your daily readings, you'll see the irony is that their worship services are great. They have stained glass. They sing all the great old hymns that you and I love. They rejoice with all the best new contemporary songs. Anything else you think would make for a great Sunday service, they have. But their hearts toward others, towards God, are broken. So into this situation, Isaiah is handed this decades-long vision and responsibility. And he's sent to preach to a people who will mostly not listen to him. In this passage this morning, again, mostly not only the the five verses in chapter 2 you heard, but really starting in chapter 1, is an overture of the entire book. The main themes are here. The consequences of Israel's decision. We think chapter 1 is probably written in the early 700s, so many years after Uzziah. Down through kings, we're probably into Ahaz, and there's already been rebellion and destruction. Jerusalem still stands, but the land around it has been ravaged and pillaged. Assyria is on the move to besiege Jerusalem. And God says, you are my rebellious children, but I love you. Here's what you did wrong. You you have forsaken me. To forsake the Lord is to treat him as a last resort instead of the fountainhead. As a last resort. I'll get to you, God. I'm going to try all these other 12 things first, and maybe I'll come to you. Here's what's wrong. Here's what I offer. God comes and says, look, I, you are still my children. Return. But it will cost you repentance. You're going to have to admit what you've done wrong. You have to leave the idols you have given yourself to. But here is the new life you'll receive. And we hear this line in chapter 1 that many of us have heard before out of context. God says, Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be like wool. And then in chapter 2, the verses we heard read, Isaiah finishes this introduction with a vision for what life can be like. He's now going from what is to what will be way down at the end of eternity and really at the end of the book, chapter 65 and 66. Now it's not Jerusalem being besieged, but now it's Jerusalem, a city on a hill where the Messiah is king. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. The law will go out from Zion, the word from Jerusalem. Many of us have heard this line. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's Isaiah 2. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the the landing verse of this whole first introduction, chapter 1, in these verses of chapter 2. His whole appeal is summarized so well in that lovely verse. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isn't it beautiful that Isaiah includes himself? He doesn't say, come, you walk, you sinners, in the light of the Lord. It would be theologically true, but he's still saying, I'm a sinner too. I'm tempted. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
It is a stunning introduction to this book. It should be, it should give us pause. It should take your breath away when you get some sense of what's really happening. And I'd like to just give three ways that this set of verses can guide and give us wisdom as we swoop over Christmas like the wise owl this morning. How can Isaiah's vision guide our reflection in life in Advent? I want to give you three ways. First, let's remember who is the true light of the world. You and I are going to hear all about light this month. The collect of today, we actually reminded ourselves that Jesus and God is the light. How many of you um, maybe shopped on Black Friday? Or it's hanging, you know, day before Black Friday, Thursday, the 3 p.m. How many started getting emails from people? That sort of anxiety producing, oh my gosh, it might be gone. Old Navy may only have 3 million pairs of $1 socks. What will I do if I don't get one, right? In our house, there are several things that were researched and energy and excitement about certain things, things that were needed. And, and the question we sometimes ask each other and our kids is, okay, will that thing, you know, change your life, right? Will it, will it, will it give you what you think it will give? Think back to what you may have bought or are hoping to buy tomorrow or whatever on Cyber Monday. What would that thing do for you? Will it? And I asked one of my children as he and I were talking about something, and I'm asking this to myself as I look at things I'm excited about, because of course you see somebody get something, you're like, ooh, I might need that, right? I don't really, but they seem to need it. Maybe I need it. I don't know. But the question I ask myself is, okay, will that produce in me more fruits of the Spirit? Will that thing produce, like, Deeper love and joy. Will I be better with people if I buy this? Or will I see it as my redeemer, as the light that I need for my world? I can remember back in sixth grade, we had moved from California to Annapolis, Maryland for two years. And if you've moved somewhere into a new community, you know you're really just trying not to be made fun of in middle school, right? Anything you need to do to blend in. No footprint, right? And I came in and I didn't wear the right clothes, I didn't know the things, and the big thing among my male peers in sixth grade was the electronic football, for those of you who remember, handheld electronic football, okay? I, for those of you, you there's nothing, I can't even give you an, a, an analogy to bring it home, but it was like the iPhone 11, is the close, like, if, I, if you had that, and so I really wanted that at Christmas, right, and, I, and there was the kind that everybody in the bus played, and you're like, you're hoping your parents can, can, do some sort of missionary research into the middle school community to get you the right one for Christmas, right? And so I got a, an electronic football, but notice how I describe it, an electronic football for Christmas, but it wasn't the electronic football. And I remember being like, ah, ah, and knowing that my parents are excited and they're kind of hoping I'm excited, and I'm like, this is terrible. This will not save me at all. This is not the light of my world. This is a poorly resourced flashlight at best, for my world. I'm going to get made fun of. I might not even take it to the bus on the first day back to school. Isn't it easy to believe that something else will redeem us than the Lord? Isn't it easy to think even Advent, Advent become about us. Here's what I'm doing in Advent. The point of Advent is what God is doing. The point of this book, the central subject of this chapter in Isaiah is God. And God, his particular characteristic here that is stunning is God the Redeemer. God is working to redeem and save us here. He's not going to leave Israel in despair. He would be fully in his legal rights to do that. They have broken the covenant every which way they could. 
just like you and I do. But God comes to redeem, and he doesn't just come to redeem. He comes to redeem by bringing justice. See, there's a debt that has to be paid. That's some of what's coming through in chapter 1. The big theological term we use is the atonement. Somebody has to atone for the debt. It'd be like, think about that thing you bought on Good Friday. You haven't paid for yet. And I came to you after church and said, I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to atone for what you owe with Amazon or Walmart or Apple or Samsung. I'm going to pay it. That's what God is saying. Whatever debt you have, whatever you bought, pursuing that false redeemer, I'm going to pay it on your behalf because that's how much I want to redeem you. That's how committed God is to light breaking into the darkness. He'll pay for it himself. And the beautiful, bitter irony about Advent is that we know how he's going to do that. He's going to do it with the little baby we expect later this month. And that's how much God loves you. I'm going to pay your Black Friday debt. I'm going to do it with the most precious thing I own. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Later in Isaiah, we read this this Redeemer, this Messiah, is going to suffer for us. By his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah is going to write that later. That's how he's going to take care of this redemptive need you have in chapter 1. So let's remember first, who is the true light of the world? Who is our Redeemer? Second, then let's have courage in the darkness. Isaiah is inviting us to walk in the light, which, which implies there's darkness, right? It implies that you could walk another way. The invitation to walk in the light reminds us we are surrounded by darkness. And we are, aren't we? Can't you feel that? Can you taste that? Don't we feel darkness personally, the places in your own heart where you're like, man, I wish I didn't do that, or I wish I wasn't experiencing that, or I wish I wasn't involved in this thing, this, in this boss, this relationship, my sibling at Thanksgiving two days ago. These, all these places where we are surrounded by personal darkness. And then, of course, particularly in our city, we see the domestic darkness, right? There's political darkness. There's places where all of us who assume politics will bring us salvation are suddenly having real anxiety about whether that could be true. doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on or if you're in the middle. Isn't part of the anxiety on the front page of the Post tomorrow because some of us were hoping that that person would be the Redeemer that we wish for. And yet again, there's anger and there's hostility and there's mistrust and there's objectification and there's racism and all the things that show the darkness of our own hearts. And of course, there's darkness internationally. There's darkness in Syria. The last couple of days, there's been darkness on the streets of London and the Netherlands as people innocently walked to shop. There's darkness in Chile, which has particular relevance to this particular loving community. It's the same kinds of darkness we see in Isaiah, the same kinds of violence, the same kinds of political back and forth, corruption, destruction, upheaval. God's people pushed to the margins, God's people feeling irrelevant, God's people tempted to look for another political alliance because that may bring the salvation we need. Maybe God's asleep. Maybe he hibernates, we don't know. Maybe God's a big bear and he goes to sleep for the winter and we don't know where he is. 
But again, the true narrative here in Isaiah is not political. And the true narrative here in Vienna is not political. And the true area, the true need in Annandale, where we worship, and in Falls Church where I live, is not political. It's the human heart. It's children rebellious against their true father. So hear again the word of the Lord. Are you overwhelmed? Or do you want to make an alliance with Assyria? Or do you want to make right the ways of the nations by appealing to Zion? Because what we hear in Isaiah chapter 2 is the nations will go to Zion. That's the tract of history. That's the trend. And it didn't look any brighter in Israel than it does here now. The trends of history are pretty much the same. And if you're discouraged by yourself and your own darkness and you feel like, I just, I know I can't, I want to make myself white. I've tried. What Isaiah would say is don't try. Come to the Lord. The Redeemer is offering you, I will make you white. You can't make yourself white. You don't have to. The gospel has come and God will make you white. Your sins will be white as snow. How many of you think you'll hear the words and the song White Christmas at least once? this year maybe today <laughs> could we commit together to when you hear that line this year you you take that to the lord and go lord make me white as snow this christmas can white christmas be and it's a lovely song but could it be a prod into the words of isaiah for us this year lord only you can make me white praise the lord Let's have courage in the darkness. Third then and last, let's remember that Isaiah's vision in Advent and Jesus is not just for you and for me. It's not just for you and for me. I think particularly in the white North American evangelical community when we have this resurgence of Advent, which, praise the Lord, as an Anglican, it's not new, but it's still new to many, many, many of us. And it often becomes around how we spend our decisions about reading and praying and seeking the Lord. Maybe your vision of Advent is a coffee cup on a warm morning with a fire where you confess your need for God. You need to do that. That's great. Please read the daily readings that we encourage you to read, etc. But Advent is not just about personal piety. We see this in Isaiah 2. First, we see how the false worship of Israel plays out. What stinks about the worship of Israel in Isaiah 1? Again, they have great Advent guides, lovely pine branches, beautiful linens and candles. But they ignored people in need. They ignored their neighbors, the widow, the fatherless, the people who might need an invitation. You have an incredible calendar. Your advent should not be just about you. You might be surrounded by folks who love an invitation to come to something here, or to give, or to walk, or to join, to be included. God is not just saving individuals in Isaiah or in Advent or in the gospel. What he is doing is raising up the new Israel for the new Jerusalem on behalf of his name as a sign, a flashing light to point in the darkness to a loving father. You and I are the people headed to Zion in Isaiah 2. You and I are the people Isaiah thought about centuries later. But we're not done, and there are people out there years down the road who need us to point 
to the Lord so that when they need to be pointed to the Lord, there are people there to do it. So if we're going to confess in Advent, what we should confess is the gap between who we are and the people we're supposed to be. You and I are to be a prophetic presence in this time in history so that other people can see the most deeply desired life they have is right here. The life that we want as humans, men, women, boys, girls, should be in the church of God. And what we confess, what we ask God's forgiveness for in Advent is the gap between who we are now and who that community is. But what we keep at, because we don't want to be like Israel in chapter 1, is, is loving people. So, how can you walk toward the light with Isaiah? What questions can you ask? What can you do the next few weeks? What can I do and will I do? Ask yourself this at, at the end of each day, the next few weeks. How, who have I loved today? Who have I loved today? What neighbor, they may live in your house, they may be in your bed, but they probably are out of your house and in your school and in these hallways and on the streets and in Starbucks and Pete's down the road. Who have you loved today? And then what or who do I think will save me today? I'd encourage you to pray that one in the morning. Lord, I, I give you my life because I believe you alone can save me today. And at the end of the day, ask, who have I loved today? It's a great line from a theologian named Thomas Watson. It says, God, cast your sin into the sea, not with cork, but with lead. God, cast your sin into the sea. Maybe you need that reminder. Or maybe you know somebody who needs to know that. Let's pray. Dear God, what a gift is Isaiah who suffered that these words might be handed down to us. And what a gift these men and women are to me every time I come. I thank you for the vision this church has to love this town. And I pray that this month you would bring renewal and revival on big and small ways through all they undertake to do. Lift our burdens, Lord, as we cast our sins on you and you cast them with lead to the sea. Maybe there's somebody here this morning, Lord, who has never given themselves to that great cast unto you they don't even know they could and we pray that they would this morning give themselves to you that they would know their sins can be made white as snow and would you give us eyes and ears for the people will be around this month you might be desperate to know that as well might have all the defense mechanisms and orneriness set up to protect themselves from who they really are may we not forget others as Israel did. In your holy name, amen.